Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Sean. Good evening. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hey. How's it going? All right. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also want to thank our new patron from our Patreon campaign, Bits and Bits Company. We appreciate that. Thank you for listening and for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to support the show. And make sure to listen all the way to the end of the show. We are going to give a shout out to some of the folks who we think are notable woodworkers to follow on social media. So let's get right into it. Hui, what is your first question? All right. My first question is from Joey. He asks, I've been commissioned to restore a round oak table with several leaves and six chairs built in the early 1900s. Wow. What an undertaking. I'm excited for this project, but restoration is still somewhat new to me. The table does have some watermarks and other blushing on the finish. If I still don't know what the finish is, I'd like to stay away from heavier solvents to avoid damaging the wood. Would going straight to an orbital sander or by hand with 120 be the best bet to get through safely? And if I wanted to try and remove a layer with a stripper of sorts, would I just guess between the mineral spirits or alcohols? Would love to hear your thoughts on this. So I thought this was a really interesting question because I know nothing about restoration, but I heard a podcast once. It's called the Against the Grain Podcast. Yes. I know that one. <laughs> and uh, and Freddie, Freddie Roman talks uh, a lot about restorations during that in that podcast. And one of the things that he had mentioned was going from the least intrusive and then uh, increasing either uh, the volatility or the uh, effectiveness of the solvent that you might be using. And I also think that it's best to, uh, to go to uh, an area of the uh, of the table that might not be as noticeable at first and just to test it out and see what uh, what's going on in, in terms of uh, what kind of finish uh, you have and and most likely the solvent that you use either to strip it is going to give you an indication of what kind of finish is on on the table and the chairs I would probably go with hand sanding first just to uh, see if whether or not that will remove the majority of it but you know going orbital sander I think if you go a little bit too deep then you know, you might be uh, going into deeper layers that might come into a whole host of problems where now you might actually be. It may it, it may be veneered, too. It may be veneered, too. And if you if you yeah. go too aggressive, you might go through it. So definitely go with the hand sanding first. At least, you know, that would be my strategy is to go from the least intrusive up to see if whether or not that'll remove most of the material. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have done any restorations or you know, I imagine guy, you probably know a lot more than we do since you hang out with, uh, with, <laughs> with Freddie on a, on a, you know, biweekly cases on the podcast. So, you know, maybe what, what would you do? And, and if you were commissioned to do something like this, I would talk to Freddie. <laughs> so, or, um, I can't think of his name right now. Well, the gentleman down Atlanta, Jesse, from what I understand, and I'm, I'm not, I've only done a few refinishing projects in my in my time, mm -hmm. and both times I used a, a citrus stripper, which didn't work very well. From what I understand, what what you had said is is absolutely correct. We start with a, a less caustic chemical. 
If it's from the early 1900s, more than likely it's an oil or more, more probably it's a shellac finish. I would take some denatured alcohol in a spot where it isn't going to be highly noticeable and put some of it on there and rub it in and see if it softens the finish. Mm. If it does, then you could just use denatured alcohol to, to get rid of the bulk of it. But you, again, you have to be careful because there's a chance that if it's veneer, you could damage the veneer. Mm. So I'm not I'm not the best person to ask be asking or be answering this question because I really don't know that much about it. Well, that that's a really good insight too. Is is whether or not a question to ask is whether or not there's veneer. If this is a veneered red oak or a round oak table and chairs, my guess is that the the chairs are probably not veneered. Would that be a safe assumption? I don't ever want to assume anything, but I would say that's a pretty safe bet. You know, yeah. the table may not be either. If it's a simple round table, you know, I I doubt that it is, but you never know. Sean, yeah. have you ever done any work like this? No, I have not. Uh, well, let me take it back. I did help my dad um, strip about 17 or 18 uh, doors that my sister had on her cabinets that they, they painted and put polyurethane on. And uh, they did a really, not my sister, but they hired somebody and did a crappy job. We did use the, the citrus strip, let it set on there and, and scrape it off. And that did do a pretty good job of... Uh, removing the poly top coat. But again, I don't, you know, I've never restored furniture, so I don't, I don't have a lot to add to this, but I will say one good resource on YouTube is the uh, Thomas Johnson antique furniture restoration YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. That's all he does. And he restores all kinds of antiques and, and teaches you throughout the whole thing, what he's doing. And if you watch a few of his videos, you can pick up some amazing tips. But again, um, there's nothing that I can add. Just just read, 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 watch videos and ask a lot of questions to folks and and hopefully they will guide you down the right path. But unfortunately, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm well, sorry. The gentleman's name I was thinking before is Josh Brackett. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Jo Josh Brackett. So I'm sorry, Josh. Color theory guy, right? Yeah. But he's a he's a very talented refinisher too. There's a lot of guys on Instagram that do a lot of finish refinishing. Uh, there's a guy here local. His name is Jeff, and it's JJ. I think it's JJF finishing on Instagram. He does mm -hmm. a lot of refinishing stuff. I wish I could really be more help, Joy, but I I think that if if I give you some kind of more of a definitive answer to this question. I might be leading you down a path that we shouldn't be leading you down. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. For yeah, sure. I, for sure. I do know that the fella on the video, YouTube videos that I mentioned to remove the, th this is the only thing that I pick up because he does it on every video is he use oxalic acid to remove the water rings. But that's, that's, <laughs> that's all I can add to this conversation. <laughs> Uses what kind of acid? Oxalic acid. Never heard of it. Mixes it with water to uh, remove the, uh, yeah, again, don't use this as, how to restore furniture. That's the only thing I remember because he does it in every video to remove the water rings and water stains mm. on his furniture. It's a really good uh, YouTube channel. If you're into uh, restoring furniture, he does a really good job. Locally, we have, uh, used to be a, I guess a furniture medic is, is, is that a franchise or it's a franchise yeah. franchise? And we had a furniture medic guy here locally, but he's, uh, you know, he's older now. He retired and he actually 
passed along the business to his daughter and his daughter has been learning the trade. And I've been in contact with her to, to ask questions about color theory and refinishing and, and some of the products that she uses. Um, you, you try to find somebody local and, and see if whether or not you can pick their brain and, you know, hey, just maybe throw them, you know, an hour's worth of time and just to be educated on this stuff because it is a totally different craft than what it is that we do generally. You know, yeah. working with virgin materials and and materials that have not been shaped or used or or finished before is a totally different animal than than taking something that's already been completely finished from now trying to bring it back to life. It's it's a totally different animal. Yeah, especially something that's a hundred years old. Yeah, for sure. But it's a really good question. Definitely. I wish we could be more help. Yeah, I wish so too. But I thought it was you know again the theory is go from something a little bit less caustic and, and moving your way up. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it's something outside of all of our comfort zones and we don't address it often on the show. So what little info we did give, hopefully it helps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Guy, what do you have for us? This is from Brent Jarvis at Clean Cut Woodworking. Uh, this is a rather long email, so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. I hope I don't offend Brent. Basically saying he loves the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> He said he's going down the rabbit hole of different wood glues. He says, I've always used Type On 3 because it just seemed the most versatile of any glue out there. It's water resistant and food safe. So why have 15 different glues for a thousand different applications? As I grow more and more into the trade, it leads me to wanting to move more towards the more tried and true methods some of the most reputable woodworkers have proved to be the best practices for certain applications. <clears throat> so this is his question. What type of glues do you migrate to the most and what is the reason for that? Now, this is a pretty deep dive. I don't know we're going to go really deep into it, but I think mm -hmm. we can have a, a, a good short discussion on it. Is it a certain type of glue for a certain application or do you sort of do like me and stick with a particular glue for any project you make. Would you design a project and decide that you're going to use a certain type of glue for it over another? Thank you for your time. Keep up the absolute wonderful work. And uh, all right. So let me break this answer down into a couple things. He's saying he's always used type bond three. He also mentions that best practices for certain applications that is absolutely what it is, Brent. Type on three in 99 out of 100 applications will do everything you want a glue to do. It's water resistant and food safe, like, like you mentioned. It has a decent open time. It tacks up in probably about 10, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's good glue. It, once, it's, once it dries, it's very strong. There are situations where now see like me i do a lot of veneer work a lot of bent laminations things like that myself i prefer to use a glue that leaves a more rigid glue line and type on three will not give you that glues that would give you a a, a rigid glue line or something like an epoxy hmm. uh, polyurethane glue hide glue urea resin or, or urea formaldehyde glue, look just like, like your Type Bond, not Type Bond, Unibond 800, mm -hmm. things like that. And it, it really does boil down to what you're, what you're doing. But in most cases, 
Tight Bond 2 or Tight Bond 3 is all you really need. If I were only to have like three different, three or four different glues in the shop, I would have the uh, probably Tight Bond 2, not Tight Bond 3. I think Tight Bond 3 is a little runny uh, and it leaves a dark glue line that doesn't look real good on cherry or maple. Hmm. I would also keep some of the Franklin hide glue, which is also very good glue, and I use that quite a bit. Epoxy is always good to have around too, not to make river tables <laughs> out of, but to glue things, <laughs> but to glue things together. It, it's nice. It's nice because it's gap filling. Yeah, which the other glues are not, and and a pretty long open time. Yeah, and a very long open time. Yeah. All the uh, drawers I made for my kitchen cabinets, they're all epoxy together. But yeah, it's its a different glue for different applications. I, I, Sean? I agree. Um, you know, I'm looking at a chart between the different type bond glues, and I would agree with him that I would just, if I, you know, for 99% of what I do, type bond three would be the one that I would go with. The, the strength is 4,000 PSI. It's a little bit more than the other ones. 3,750 for type bond two and 3,600 for type bond one. Open time, what, is that, right what, is that number, what does that number mean? I don't know. It's higher, so I'm just going to say it's better. <laughs> uh, open time is 10 minutes versus five on the others, and the chalk temperature is 47 versus 55 for two and 50 for one. The and viscosity temperature. <laughs> what is that? I'm mean? guessing how how cold it can be. Yeah, if it gets too cold, it, the the glue chalk. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. chalk. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And viscosity. Uh, don't ask me what this means, guy. 4,200 CPS for type bond three, 3,200 for two, and 3,400 for one. And exterior use, it says yes with a couple little asterisks next to it. So, but anyways, it's water waterproof. But uh, yeah, as you said, water water resistant, water resistance, open time, and strength for 99% of what I would do in the, in the shop. I would use type bond three for basic furniture construction. Epoxy, like you said, if it's a flat panel veneer, I would probably wouldn't mind using, you know, the type bond three that I have. Um, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't go with anything crazy, but if you have any curves, obviously you want to switch to something else. Um, what was that? Um, the resin glue. Yeah. About 800 or DAP Weldwood is the same thing. And you can get that at, uh, you know, big box stores. Yeah. That's, that's the one that I have. I still have a big container of that. Um, but yeah, you mix it with water. Uh, that's what I would keep in. Obviously your CA glues for, um, yeah, you know, for what you need to see a glue is, for. It's handy. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think God did a great job covering everything. And I agree 100% with him for once. Yeah, I, I use I use high glue 99% oh, high glue. of the time. Yes. Yes. Forgot about high glue. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially I got sliding dovetails on this Bobinga wall cat or not wall cat. I'm the bookcase that I'm making. And I'm going to be using high glue on that because it's already going to be a snug fit on the sliding dovetails. And that's going to lubricate it so that's yeah a good a good point yeah. on the yeah. uh, hide glue guy yeah we yeah something that uh to to note about tight bond is that it has you know quite a bit of water in it so it actually uh sees up your joints a little bit i experienced that a couple of times where i was using pva glue and it really kind of swelled up that joint and what was a nice friction fit before was oh my goodness was a bear to try to get yeah, together. You're, you're pounding it in. Oh my goodness, yeah. And so that's you know again that's one of the reasons why I've started using uh, either the Franklin Hyde glue or the old brown glue is because it actually r- lubricates the joint really nicely. It becomes a lot easier to get those joints together. But 
you know, I'm still using PVA glue. Those are really kind of the two glues that I use the most are PVA and hide glue. Um, you know, of course, like you said, the epoxy, the DAP, the um, I haven't actually used uh, Unibon 800, but I have used the DAP. I've used the other Unibon one, which is uh, uh, has more solids in it. It's a PVA glue with more solids in it. But yeah, you know, that leaves a, that stuff is pretty good. It leaves a yeah. really rigid glue line. I was yeah. I tested it and it was I was very impressed with it. Yeah, it's very nice. So, you know, it's all about the application. That's really what it is. It's it's but if most of what you're doing is perfectly fine with PVA glue, stick with PVA glue. There's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly yeah. fine. So, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of advantages to hide glue and that's why I use it. You know, mainly mm -hmm. it it doesn't swell the wood up. So, I, I saw this one video by a actually a very um, prolific YouTube guy. And he was talking about fitting his mortise and tenon joints together. And he said, and I was kind of shocked by this. He said, well, I want the mortise and tenon joints to be a little loose. Ooh. Because when I put the glue on it, the fibers are going to swell up and it's going to make it hard to put the piece in there. And I'm like, uh-huh. And then when the glue dries and all the water leaves, what's going to happen to the joint? That wood is going to shrink again and the joint's going to fail. Yeah. That's, that is a, and I've heard, I, that's not the only time I've heard that. Really? That's weird. Yeah. I've heard it a couple times and it's, it's very shocking to hear that. Huh. With hide glue, getting a nice tight fitting joint yeah. and using hide glue, it's, it's almost magical. It just slides right in there. Plus, even after it dries, you can clean it up with water. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't leave glue spots on your the wood surface. Yeah. It's reversible with steam. It's a pain in the butt to do it. I've had to do it a couple times, and I was glad I used high glue. But still, it's it's it can be difficult. The only time I really use PVA glue is um, when I'm using plywood or I'm using like maple. And I tend to stick to the tight bond too. Uh, the, the hide glue, especially the Franklin hide glue, that stuff can leave a very dark glue line. It's not good on, uh, on maple. I've got a question for, well, actually it's, it's a question, but also a statement. I, I actually talked with Franklin because uh, I had a bottle of hide glue and it stayed in my shop over the winter and I noticed that it had become almost like a blob of jelly um, and I threw it out and I, I called them and I told them about it. And he says, well, you shouldn't have thrown it out. You could have just heated it up. Heat it would have been, up. yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I keep, I keep my high glue in the fridge. Yeah. I had, I, you know, I know that now obviously, but at that time I had yeah. no idea. I was like, oh man, this stuff is no good anymore. It's like, no, you can just yeah. heat it up. Now, if, if I if I'm using like a a cherry or something like that, I have I have like the regular you know high glue little granules, mm. and I've got a, a wax melter, and I I go in there and I I heat it up and I make some of that stuff up, and mm. it's got it's got a very light color to it, which is something I don't like about the type uh, on Franklin the, the type on or the it's actually Franklin high glue. Right. And okay. the, the, the stuff Patrick Edward makes, um, the old brown glue, that stuff is awesome. And that's yeah. got extra chemicals in it, uh, polymers of some kind that, that make it very, very strong. But then again, 
I mean, you have to heat that stuff up because it's yeah. a big glob in the bottom. But I keep mine in the fridge. <laughs> and when you pull it out of the fridge, it's it's like a big block in there. Yeah. But um, if you get this, like I said, the, the high glue granules, <clears throat> mix it with water, heat it up. It's uh, much lighter than the, the Franklin or the old brown glue. So mm. anyways... I think that's about it. Who's got the next question? That would be Sean. That is me. And this one is from Casey. I've got a large hole in a piece of ash. I'm not sure what to do with it. You've got a hole in your ash? In his ash. He's got a hole, a large hole in his piece of ash. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure what to do with it other than fill it with a black epoxy because the top will be stained pretty dark. I'm just worried it will be a really dark spot. That is a tough one without any information as far as how large the hole is. I know you sent a picture and it looked to be fairly large. I'm not sure how deep it is. Well, what are you, uh, what are you to, calling large, Sean? The size of a quarter, the size of... How, how deep it is and, and I'm talking like... It's hard to tell. Are you asking me what I think is large or what he sent? What, what does the picture show as it being large? What's he saying? Large hole. Yeah, it's... I mean, it looks to be probably about a half inch wide and maybe two or three inches long okay, and pretty deep. It looks like maybe a um, a knot was there that came out. It, actually, that's what it looks like to me. Mm. Um, it's it's fairly large, in my opinion. Um, and looking at that, uh, I, I think you're going to have something that's pretty noticeable no matter what you do. I mean, well, I don't, let me take that back. There's probably some stuff that's way more advanced than I know that you could do to make it, you know, not appear as drastic as if you were to, you know, say find another ash board or flip it over, (laughs) (laughs) you know, with epoxy, you can tint it to a color that's really close to the stain that you're going with. And Mm. it'll do a pretty good job of blending in. Uh, I just finished two ash tabletops and I dyed it with India ink uh, to get a nice black color. And it had all kinds of issues. I don't know if you saw my pictures on Instagram, but it looked like a murder scene with epoxy on the top of them because they just had little tiny holes in them. They had um, some knots and cracks and all kinds of stuff that that I had to fill. So I just tinted the epoxy with black trans tint to fill the voids. And now that the top is finished, it blended right in and accepted finish. And I can't even tell where they are. However, these aren't really wide uh, cracks or holes. They're, They're hairline cracks. With what you have, if you fill it with epoxy or you fill it with wood putty and tint and stain the wood putty, you're going to be missing, you know, traditional grain pattern of ash. It's a nice, you know, it's an open pore wood, so you're not going to have that. It's going to be a, a flat surface, uh, even if you fill it with epoxy or, you know, like I was saying, with, with any wood putty. So if you, I mean, another thing that's optional is patching it with a piece of ash. Uh, you'll see an outline of that. But it, this is a tough one. I'm not even sure what to recommend, honestly. If it were me, I would try to find another piece. And if you couldn't, I would probably fill it in with tinted uh, epoxy that's close to the color of the stain. I'd go right for the patch. Yeah. If Yeah. I mean, just, you know, that's, uh, I think Norm Abrams used to call them Dutchman's. Yeah. And, yes, that's um, what I was going to recommend next. You know, you can cut a, a pattern in there. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I did it to a, a piece not long ago where I didn't want this knot, but it was the only board I had. So I just routed it out and put a bow tie in there, a a Dutchman. Yep. You can see it. Okay. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Right. Yeah. No matter what you do, unless you get another another board, you're going to probably see something. It's now we're trying to figure out a way to 
you know, to not make it as visible to help blend in. And I think like I was saying, uh, a bow tie or whatever is probably going to give you the grain consistency. If you can find a piece that's similar in grain pattern, um, if you're going to dye it anyways, um, you're, even though you can stain some of the putties, I still think it's not going to be perfect. You know, five years from now, you know, you're going to be able to probably tell a difference and, um, yeah, a Dutchman or a bow tie or whatever you want to call it is a good option, um, to, to patch that area and get, get a little creative with it. Uh, what do you think, Wee? Uh, those are really the only two options I would probably go with. I think when something is that noticeable and it's that big, uh, for me, I usually think, okay, well, that's probably going to be pretty hard to hide. So let me embellish it. And I think, you know, doing a Dutchman or something like that, even doing a contrasting color, um, you know, might be a design feature that you might want for it. You know, if you, if you can't hide it, then embellish it. Right. So, uh, I don't know if that's what you're necessarily looking for, but that's sometimes a, a theory that I go with. Yeah. Even, you know, and I go back, uh, I said I would probably epoxy, but I don't know because even if you, I epoxied mine because I went with a jet black India ink and mm-hmm. I mean, it is black. It's not a, a brown or the, it's just black. So that is easy to get a tinted po- epoxy to match. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, but you're going a dark stain. It doesn't mean black. You could be going dark brown. You're going to see, you're going to see it with epoxy. It's going to be a, a slick spot. You're going to see it. It's going to stand out because it's not yeah. going to have that natural grain yeah. pattern. So even if you went with a wood that didn't have open pores like ash, I still think that it would stand out as, as like a, a light slick spot because you're not going like something that is dark black where it's not going to be as noticeable. There you go. Guy, did you have any, anything else to add to that? You know, I've got a lot of things going through my head right now about the, you know, the ash hole. But um, <laughs> oh, I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to refrain. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> from saying anything else. Oh. I, I, myself, like I said, I think a patch is the best way to go. Because anything that large, I mean, if it was small, and what Sean's talking about is exactly right, it's going to have a different um, sheen to it than everything else on it if you fill it with epoxy. That's like everybody's thing now. I got to fill it with epoxy. I got to fill it with epoxy. No, you don't. Uh, you can patch it and that'll be fine too. I think if it's that large, I would go ahead and patch it. That would be me. Yep. I, I completely agree. And I think that may be the title of this uh, podcast episode, Ash Hole. <laughs> Patching your ash hole? <laughs> yes, exactly that. Patching your ash hole. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh. So Ooh, good. Hui, can you bring us back down with your next question? All right. So <laughs> this is from David and he asks, my son had a black walnut cut down last October. The arborist also had a portable mill. So he milled up a number of slabs for me. I have kept these slabs in my garage since then. They are stickered and I put three ratchet straps around the pile to hopefully keep them flat. When is the right time to move them into the house? Is it okay to keep them in the garage? Have you guys harvested any lumber like this? I know Cremona has a process, but I want to know what normal people do. Just kidding. I love Cremona. Uh, I'm really enjoying the pot format of the podcast. I listen to a number of them. Keep up the great work. Uh, so I have actually harvested a couple of uh, walnut logs that have that have fallen down, and, and, and I actually have a a chainsaw mill that I actually used. I don't do it anymore just because uh, drying that lumber in your garage, it just, it takes up a lot of space. But when I was doing it, I did the exact same thing that you did. Uh, At the time, my garage was not climate controlled. So that's something to keep in mind because the first 
amount of moisture that's coming out of those logs, out of that wood, is a lot. And it comes out very fast. And then it slows down rapidly. So somewhere around like uh, 20, 18, maybe 15% moisture content, you're you're gonna cut down the tree, you're gonna you're gonna mill up the logs, a lot of water is gonna come out, and then it's gonna pretty much slow down around like 20, 18, maybe 15%. When it gets down to that moisture content, and again, get yourself a cheap moisture meter or whatever, and so you can kind of see when the moisture content of logs sort of level or the uh, slabs levels out. I would say at that point, you can go into an intermediary, maybe like the hallway between your garage and your uh, house. But at that point is where you want to kind of bring the moisture content down slow, because if you bring it down fast... You can get a lot of checking, you can get a lot of uh, warping, and and it, it's just no good. Uh, I kept the eight-quarter slabs of walnut in my garage for over two years, and after that, I, I felt comfortable using them. You know, is it, do, do I have a, like an exact answer as to what the, how long you have to wait? I mean, generally speaking, I've heard, you know, a year per inch. Obviously, I waited two and a half years before I even started using it. And again, I did a moisture moisture content reading with my moisture meter. So, you know, you, you just have to check it. And and I think you're doing perfectly fine by just keeping it in the garage and having it ratcheted and, and on stickers. Sean, have you done any harvesting or have you ever gotten any like really like right off the mill wood that you tried drying in your garage? And what was your process? Yeah, two pieces of eight quarter walnut as well. Uh, I was buying some lumber and and the sawmill was throwing them out and I was like, man, I could do something with that. I can make a a box or something. So I took two uh, rough pieces, eight quarter walnut with the live edge still on it. And I, like you said, I let it set uh, an inch per year. So over two years and I just left it in my garage, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty stable. It doesn't change much. And after about two, two and a half years, like you, I used it and it came out great. I didn't yeah. check the moisture reading. I just uh, lived hmm. dangerously and and used it. Living on the edge. Now you have a you have a mini split in your garage, right? Uh, yes, I do. Um, that was I do now. I don't. I didn't at the time of that, so I didn't. I just left it in the garage where uh, I never took it inside or anything like that, and just left it for two years, stacked, stickered. Yeah. How about you, guy? Uh, I have nothing to add to this conversation. I've <laughs> never milled lumber. I will never mill lumber. I have no desire to mill lumber. I simply call the lumber yard and they deliver it. Yeah, I've I've gotten to that point. Too. That's all I want to do, and that's all I'm going to do. Um, sometimes <laughs> I find guys because I like I really like air dried walnut mm-hmm. <clears throat> for the color of it, and a couple times a year I'll find a guy locally that has some air dried, and I'll go buy a hundred or 200 board feet of it and stick it in my lumber rack and leave it there for, you know, a year and a half, two years. But that's pretty much it. I have no desire to mill lumber. It's just not worth it. Yeah. Same here. It's not, I don't have the room for it. Yeah. And most of the stuff I see milled up by guys that have, you know, that do a lot of the milling, the the lumber is just, it's common. It doesn't look good. It's just, I like to get nice, select them better and no knots and oh yeah 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 yeah. it's just much easier to work that way and try that out uh wait you know a year per inch and in your garage and i think you should be fine keep it ratcheted make sure you got plenty of stickers and you should be fine 
you know. Guy, I think you got the next question, buddy. Oh, I do? Yep. All right. This is from JJ from Alaska. And this is a tool question. This is regarding the ETS-25, which is a FEST tool, random orbit sander. Mm-hmm. Is that just a smaller Rotex 150, basically? Why not use the... Uh, that's just a different type of random orbit sander from Festool. Why not use the RO150 to cover more area? I only have the RO150 and the triangle, triangular-shaped one, the DTS. The Rotex and the ETS are completely different animals. Mm-hmm. The Just for the, the folks listening at home that aren't familiar with the Festool line, the Rotex 150 means it's a 150 millimeter or about six inches. And it has two modes. It has a random orbit mode and then a gear driven mode. So you can use it almost, it's, it just spins around. No matter how much pressure you put down on that thing, you can't bog down the pad. Well, I imagine you could, but you know what I mean. Uh, and it's always spinning. It's very good for a lot of I'm sorry. Uh, If you'd want to do a lot of aggressive stock removal, I have a Rotex 125 and an ETS 125. I rarely use my RO 125 anymore, Um, mainly because I don't need to get that aggressive with it. And I found that the ETS, and see, that's the other thing. They also make an ETS 150, just so you know, JJ. The ETS sanders, you know, they don't have a a gear mode like the Rotex models. Mm -hmm. However, you can get them that have a a shorter throw or a shorter stroke. So, Mm -hmm. for example, like there's an ETS 150 slash 3 and an ETS 150 slash 5. The ETS 150 slash 3 is going to have a 3 millimeter stroke. So it's actually much better at, I should say, less prone to create pigtails in your in your work. The, the RO models, I believe those are five millimeter stroke only. I don't think they make a RO150 with three millimeter stroke. That's just one, it's just five millimeter. So two completely different sanders for two completely different things. So if you want to do finish sanding, I'd recommend getting an ETS, in your case, an ETS 150. So mm-hmm. you can have a six inch versus a five inch. Do you guys have anything to add to that or? Not really. Nope. <laughs> I don't have an RO, never used one. So I don't know what I'm missing. What do you, what do you have? You've got the, the brushless yeah. model of that, don't you? The I think it's one. the ETS 125, I think is what I have. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's the ETSC 125. It's the brushless model. model, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They they threw an extra letter in there. I have no idea what any of those letters mean. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. ETSEC 125. Okay, ETSEC. Added two letters? Yeah, I'm special. I've got the two-letter edition. Why did you go with the 125? Now, I know I went with the 125 over the 150. But why, why did you go to the 125 or the 150? Was it a, a budget thing or? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, spending 400 on the sander was already too much. I wasn't going to spend the extra probably $59, $69 on the larger one. 
<laughs> the reason the reason I have an ETS one twenty five and an RO one twenty five is because I only need one size of sandpaper. Yep, that's exactly why I did it too. Yeah, so if you get an RO one fifty and you decide you need a, a, a finer sander, then get an RO one fifty. You know, yeah. don't don't get the one twenty five. That would be my suggestion. Price difference is one hundred and ten, so that was probably why. And five inch is uh, it's good enough for my sanding needs. I guess that's it. That, that was that was a quick answer. <laughs> I wish we could I mean, elaborate more on that. <laughs> All right, cool. So uh, this is my last question from James. I'm working on an entry table with through mortise and tenon joints with the tenon as a show feature. I'm cutting the mortises using a drill press and cleaning up with chisels. I tried a sample piece and it does not look great. Is there a good technique to get a near perfect joint? Or will I be okay filling in the cracks with the sawdust glue filler trick? What do you recommend? Well, James, um, this is how I would do the for the, uh, the the through mortises. I would start out by marking both faces with a marking gauge or a marking knife. And this is going to show you exactly where the mortises are on both faces. And you want to lay out the full mortises and make deep scribe lines with your marking gauge or your marking knife. So that way, you, when you're paring away the waste, you'll have a, a, a nice spot for your chisel to lay. Mm. And fill it in with pencil just to make it a little easier to see. And with both the faces marked, I head over to the to the drill press, chuck in the bit, and then I remove the waste. But one important fact is you want to keep the show face facing up just mm -hmm. in case your bit going all the way through gives you any tear out that's on the inside right. and your tendon shoulders will be hiding that. So keep your show face up, remove, remove a majority of the waste, stay about a 16th or an eighth of an inch away from your line and just remove as much waste as you can. And with the holes drilled, you can start removing the waste with your chisel, start from the center, uh, remove your waste, work your way back to the scribe line, because if you start your scribe line, it's going to push your scribe line back because of the waste in front of it. Remove your waste, in the center, start your way back, work halfway down the thickness of the board. That means go all the way back to the scribe line and at the scribe line, go halfway down the thickness of the board, flip it over to your waist face, which is still a face you want to be clean. Um, again, work from the center back, keep your chisel in the scribe line, keep it uh, perfectly 90 degrees and then remove the waste. And you're working your way back to these scribe lines. And it's essentially the same way as if you were to cut uh, remove the waste from your pins and tails boards when cutting your dovetails. Remove your waste, work your way back to the scribe lines, keep your chisel in that scribe line, make sure the lines are nice and deep. And if you follow those scribe lines all the way around, you're going to be left with a clean face. Keep your chisel perpendicular and uh, you're good to go. Now, that would be my method um, for removing the waste and having clean lines. Is there anything you guys can add to that? I just recently saw uh, a guy on Instagram, Justin De Palma, do a very interesting yeah. way of attacking this problem that I've never thought of, and it's it was a really good good idea. So what he did was, well, let's say he's got this uh, table leg that he wants in the end to be three inches thick at the top, or let's say two inches thick at the top, whatever the number is. So he added an extra quarter inch to it on the one side. And what he did was he went down the, the mortise. He was at, but he was using a mortising machine. Mm, so yeah. you could also do this with a, a router would be another good way to do it. And he went down from the, the, the face of the leg and cut the mortise down. And then he simply flipped the board over and then ripped off the extra. 
Mm. and got a really clean through mortise on the other that, side. That's yeah. clever. I saw that too, and I instant messaged, I DM'd him, and I was like, that is so clever. That's, that was, that's, clever. that's, that's slicker than snot. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the way I would do it is, you know, I, I have a mortising machine. I don't do anything by hand unless I absolutely have to. Um, <laughs> but I would use a mortising machine, and I would cut from the show face. You know, and, and I'd get pretty clean mortises that way. If you have a router, a router is a good way to do it too. You'll get yep. nice, clean mortise walls that way than you will with more so than you will with the drill press and cleaning up with chisels. For sure. Yep. 100% agree. And I, and I only stuck with drill press because that's what he mentioned. I yeah. 100% would, would go with the router, plunge router, if, mm. if it were me. But still, what Guy said, show face up, plunge route, mm-hmm. flip it over, plunge route, boom. Yep. Yeah. I've I've uh done your method guy and also your method Sean. I've not tried Justin's, but man, that is stinking clever. The, one other thing that uh I do to help me a little bit is actually use blue painters tape. The person that I've seen use it a lot is Michael Pekovich, and so I tried to incorporate it. <laughs> he's new. Uh, he's, he's only new. been around for about um, a month it, on Instagram, and, and you know it works pretty good, pretty well with the blue painters tape. It kind of is training wheels to make sure that I don't go past that line. But absolutely, Sean, the most one of the most important things that I, I want to reiterate that you said is just going from the center back, and and also uh, I want to add I, I do the rule of halves, so I'm always cutting or paring away half of the material until I can't help but put the chisel into the scribe line. And that tends to ensure that my chisel doesn't get pushed into or past the scribe line, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's and that's about it. You guys got it. You nailed it, Sean. Awesome. Finally. Woo. But yeah, it's it's super easy to to even if you think there's like an eighth of an inch of waste in front of that scribe line, don't do it because it's so easy for it to push it back and now your lines are not straight. Yeah. Play it safe. And finally, we're going to recommend some folks to follow on social media. Hui, who do you have for us? I've got Placatoris Studios, and that is P-L-A-K-O-T-O-R-I-S underscore studio. And that's Mark Placatoris. He does a lot of studio furniture. He does a lot of steam bending. And right now, he's working on a set of bar stools or or actually studio stools i guess maybe drafting stools man they just have a lot of curves he's um introducing a lot of uh bent lamination or uh steam bending as i as i had mentioned a lot of really interesting techniques he also has done uh, a bunch of different types of lampshades and tables with uh curved legs really cool stuff Really beautiful stuff. I think uh, he's he's right now he's he's a two person shop, so he just hired somebody. But uh, I think he's coming out with he's trying to produce a line of furniture. So very neat stuff. Check him out. How about you, guy? My pick this week is John Steen from Steen Woodwork. S T E N E Woodwork. John is a uh, He's actually a, a, an installer, a commercial installer. He does some of his own furniture stuff, and he's up in Regina, Saskatchewan. He posts very frequently, so several times a day, I think. His stories, he's got a really good sense of humor. I really like following him. Um, 
he talks a lot about tools and tips and tricks, which is very helpful for a lot of people. He's he's definitely a, a big part of the, the Instagram community and a good guy, so give him a follow. Nice. Sean? All right, mine is Mr. Cabinetmaker. Mike Roberts is a furniture maker in San Antonio. He makes a very he makes builds and designs very beautiful modern furniture. And a couple of his recent projects, he's got a, a very beautiful Demilun table that I'm thinking the top is uh Babinga, I think. It's very, very beautiful. If if not, it's it's really close. But um and now he's working on a Babinga and Winge cabinet. And again, just beautiful. I really enjoy his uh, his design on on a lot of it, well, all of his projects. Yeah, I think you would be very uh, inspired by looking at his feed. You're going to pick up a thing or two from his posts. Just a great follow. He has an eye for design. Um, that is Mister Cabinet Maker on Instagram. So I think that will do it for this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have a woodworking question you'd like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or you can DM us through at woodshoplife on Instagram. And I want to briefly mention that if you hear any uh, of the social media pics or the questions on here and you want to read those, we have all of that stuff posted on sh- uh, on each episode's show notes on our website. So if we reference a book or something like that, definitely check those out on our website. And we would also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. You can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. Where can you be found at, Hui? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com and all my links to my social media are on my website. And Guy? Huh? Where can we find you? <laughs> oh, uh, guyswoodshop.com. <laughs> Great. Thanks for listening. We will see you all in a couple of weeks. Talk to you guys later. See ya. Bye.